We're going to continue our series on the attributes of God, and I just want to begin this morning by reading uh, a few verses from Psalm 86. It says, There is none like you among the gods. O Lord, there, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Pray with me. Father, you alone are God. Help us, Lord, to understand more of who you are, to give you praise, to come before you in worship and wonder and awe. We submit ourselves to you now, in Christ's name, amen. So I wanted to uh, remind you of something that Pastor Tim talked about last week as he kicked off our series on the attributes of God. He was talking about the unity and trinity that, that describes who God is. But one thing we, we kind of have to constantly weigh as we're talking about the attributes of God is that God is incomprehensible, but also knowable. So God is incomprehensible. What we mean by that is God, we will never fully grasp all that God is. We will never secure a, a master's under, level understanding of all of God's being. He's too great. He's too wonderful. He's too immense for our minds to take in. He, God, is infinite. He's without limitations. We are finite beings, on the other hand. So we should expect, and the reason I say that, it's not just exalted language, I say that because we should expect at some point that we're going to be able to, we're just going to have to say, I don't fully get it. <laughs> I don't fully understand. And at some place, we're going to have to say, God, this, this is, you are unlike anything else in, that I experience in life. Yes. That's why the psalmists constantly say things like, oh Lord, there is none like you. That's when we talk about God's holiness. There's no one quite like God. We can say there are analogies to God, like God is mighty like a mountain or immense like an ocean or powerful like a lion. There's visual, you know, visions or, uh, sorry, uh, analogies given of God's nature and character in Scripture, but they don't fully quite say all that God is. And so we, at some point, we're going to have to simply throw our hands up, not in frustration, but in praise and say, God, you are greater than my mind can grasp. So God is incomprehensible. However, we have to also hold that God is knowable. That God is not some vast mystery that is unknowable. That sometimes that, you know, people want to talk about God in such a way that you can't know anything about God. And we, you know, oh, you just can't know what God is. He's a complete mystery, and so you can't know anything about God. And oftentimes, I wonder if that's just a way for us to say we don't really have to believe specific things about God. But the fact that God has revealed himself in creation, the fact that God has written a book, that he has made himself known, t tells us that God is, in fact, knowable. That he has revealed things about himself in scripture and in creation that are true, that are accurate. He's not lying to us. We'll talk a bit about that next week. But God can not only be known factually, like we, we, you know, we can just list attributes of God. Yes, we can know God factually and say, yes, this is true about God, but we can also know him relationally. But guys, God isn't some unknowable essence that lacks identity or personality, such as pantheism might suggest. But neither is he like the gods of Greece and Rome. You ever go back and, you know, read about Hercules and Zeus and Hera and all, and all those Greek... You know, they're just pretty much like humans. They're just like us, right? The, the, the gods that, they, that they, uh, they created. But they're just more. They're just stronger, right? But God is not like that. God can't, we can't know God fully, but we can know him truly. And so this is, the way, this is the way I want to phrase it. We'll, we will come to a place where reason will fail us. But where reason fails us, may faith uphold us. So let's keep that in mind today, especially as we're talking about some things that are a little bit more abstract, okay? Uh, we talked last week about how when we're talking about the attributes of God, theologians like to break them up into kind of two different categories. They're called the communicable and the incommunicable, meaning there are some attributes that we more share with God, all right? Like we'll talk next week about the truthfulness and faithfulness 
of God. Well, we, we can be truthful and we can be faithful. We can, we, can, we can love. God is love. We can love, right? Th- those are things that God, in some sense, communicates with us, his creation, and we share in some small sense. But when we're talking today about the self-existence and the eternity and the omnipresence and all these really high things about God that is really unique to God himself, um, those are called the incommunicable. No one else really shares those attributes. So as we're talking about these more abstract aspects of God, let us hold that, that in mind, that God, we, we may not fully grasp, fully understand, but we can know him. So I'm going to launch today with a big question, all right? This is a question that you have probably asked yourself, or you've been driving down the road, maybe your kid in the back seat, like probably like at a young age, is driving and, and asks a question, you know, that uh, maybe you're not ready for, you know? You ever, you ever had that where like your five-year-old's like, Dad, Dad, where do babies come from? And you're driving, you're like, oh, I'm not ready to answer that question today. <laughs> Sorry. You know, but, you know, or, you know, or say, hey, you know, Mom, where do I come from? Where, where, where? And, you can, and you can say, okay, well, you came from Mom and Dad. Okay, okay. Well, where did you come from? Oh, well, I came from my parents. Okay, your, your grandma and grandpa. Okay. Where did they come from? You know, you ever have that where they just kind of keep working backwards, right? It's that question that we ask, you know, where did I come from? Where did this come from? Kind of going back to where the origin is, right? And you can you can kind of do that with just about anything because everything has a beginning, right? This podium, where did this podium come from? I asked Harry Tinker, where are you at? You made this podium, right? So you can ask that question, where did this podium come from? Well, it came from the closet back there. Well, who put it back there? Well, whoever the setup team was last week. Well, where'd they get it? Well, Harry Tinker made the podium. Well, where, where'd he get the wood? Well, probably True Value or Home Depot, probably back when it wasn't like $11 for a 2 by 4 Well, where did, where did they get the wood from? Well, probably a wholesale lumber distributor. Well, where'd they get the wood from? Well, probably a lumber mill that actually took the wood and cut it. Well, where'd they get the wood from? A a tree, a forest. Like, you can keep going back and back and back, right? Because everything we have, everything that we know of in this life has a beginning and has an origin, right? So you can ask that about anything. But you ever had a kid ask you, where'd God come from? Or do you, as a child, remember asking that question? Because that is not like a high-level thinking question. Like, it's a pretty simple one that like a three, four, five, six-year-old can ask that question because they're like, everything I see starts somewhere, begins somewhere. Well, where did God begin? Who created God? That's a big question. Everything in our experience has a traceable origin. You just have to keep reaching back further and further and further. Just like with the podium, you can kind of go back all the way through to a tree, to a seed, to who planted the seed, right? Everything, though, finds its origin in God. At some point, that list ends with, well, God made it, right? Everything. Even, even people. Like, I love Luke's genealogy. There are two genealogies of, of Jesus in the New Testament, in the Gospels. One is in Matthew, which kind of like moves forward, right? And then, uh, I believe starting with Abraham. And then Luke's actually moves backwards, right? Starting with Jesus and working its way backwards to trace his lineage. And it ends with Adam, right? You know, Seth, you know, son of Adam, Adam, son of God. And that's the end of the genealogy, right? Because you don't go back any further than that. The source of Jesus's, you know, birth, his human birth, ended absolutely with, well, Adam, the son of God. But all of ours ends there too. You can go on Ancestry.com or whatever it is. Does anyone do that? Trace their lineage? Some of you maybe, or you like to trace your family tree. Like that'll only go back so far, but I can tell you for free where it'll actually end. Adam, son of God. But that, that begs a question. Does everything... If everything has its source and beginning and origin in God as the creator of all things, well, where did God come from? Well, let me give you three incorrect answers. Answers that maybe people have thought of at some times, maybe you thought of yourself, but don't quite hit the mark. One would be God created himself. The idea that, well, God made himself, he created. Well, that's kind of a non-starter because it's actually logically impossible. Right? The idea that a, that a being could bring about its own existence, it's kind of, 
it would have to exist in some form in the first place. It, if something doesn't have a will or power or anything, it, it can't bring itself forth into existence. So you don't get something from nothing. Nothing doesn't make something. Or, or this idea, some other higher creating being, you know, made God. Something else that we don't know about, some higher being created God. Well, first of all, Scripture gives no indication that there is any other God but the true God. I, I just read about that. There is no God but you. No true and living and actually existent God. So, that, so, so Scripture denies that's even a possibility. But even beyond that, even if that was the answer, it's not actually the answer, right? Because that would just kind of kick it back one more stage. Well, who made that God, right? You would just kind of kick it further and further and further, right? A third, a third response might be, well, maybe God evolved, right? That, you know, some who hold to a, a naturalistic understanding of the world, the idea that everything that exists exists through a naturalistic evolutionary means, um, that, and that's the, that's the uh, origin of life and development. They might apply that and say, well, maybe God evolved. I find that kind of an, an odd uh, understanding, the idea that we apply this atheistic, materialistic process to describe God. But also the, the idea, this, this pro, well, how would this process play out? What would God evolve from? What would that look like? How did all that stuff get there? But the idea, but really this is a non-starter as well. Because the way scripture describes God is that he doesn't develop. He is not changing. God has no potential for growth. He's not improving or getting better. God cannot increase or decrease. He can't get better or get worse. He is the same eternally. So if someone was to suggest, well, maybe God just kind of came to be, right? Well, that would actually fundamentally change what the Bible says about God, how he, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It would fundamentally change the being and character of God. So where did God come from? Who made God? No one. No one made God. God has no beginning. God has no end. God simply is. We're going to take a look at, at a couple of these aspects, of these, these attributes of God. They're going to kind of help us understand this. Because this is not a question that Christianity says, I don't know. Like, we have answers from this that we pull from Scripture. And so we're going to talk about a couple things here. The self-existence of God. We're going to talk about the eternity of God and the omnipresence of God to help answer this question. First, let's talk about how Christianity teaches us that God is self-existent. One theologian puts it this way. God, describe what it means to say God is self-sufficient or self-existent. God is the self-sufficient ground for his own existence and being. The idea here is that there's nothing outside of God that caused him to come into being, for that, would, that cause would have to be greater than himself. Put negatively, sometimes we, we, we describe this as the independence of God. Wayne Grudem uh, talks about it this way. God is independent completely, all right? Meaning that he is not dependent on anything outside of himself for existing or sustaining himself. Let me, let me quote here, and it'll be on the screen, um, from uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession. Uh, it is pretty much the Westminster Confession, but Baptist, so it's better. Um, so, so let, me, let me read from this here, just to describe this. It says, The Lord our God is one, the only living and true God. He is self-existent and infinite and being in perfection. And the next one says this, the next, the next article says, God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone is all-sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his own glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, through him, and to him. God is, in that sense, self-existent or self-sufficient. He draws his existence from nowhere else. Let me just draw a scripture that's, that really 
uh, draw from a scripture that really talks about this. One of the most important passages in all of scripture in God's self-revelation between himself and mankind comes when the Lord is speaking through something odd, a burning bush to Moses while he's in the woods, while he's in the wilderness. And God tells Moses, he says, go to Egypt and tell my people that I'm going to be their savior, that God is going to set them free. And Moses asks, he says, okay, okay. Well, you get, Moses is very hesitant, by the way. So you wonder, you know, if he, uh, how genuine he is in asking this question. But he says, well, who shall I say? What shall I say your name is? And that's an interesting question because earlier on, this God identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm, I'm your God, Moses. I'm the God of Israel, Moses. The people of Israel will know. I mean, if, if Moses showed up and said, this thus says the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and Jacob, they would completely know who he, who he, he was talking about. But, but God says something interesting. God said to Moses, Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This answer has always kind of frustrated me when I was younger. Is anybody here like really into grammar? Like you're the person who like, like you're a, you're a teacher and you like, you're always going to like correct misspelling. When someone spells, says there, but they don't spell it with an apostrophe, R-E, you know, you, you correct them, right? I was always like this, what do you mean I am? Fill in the blank. I, we need a helping verb. We need a, a subject compliment there. I am what? Right? But God just says, I, I am. I am what I am. We say that sometimes for situations. Well, it is what it is, <laughs> right? You know, you, you, there's nothing more to say about it. But God says, I am what I am. And what more can God say? It's the perfect answer. Who, who is God? Well, God is who he is. There is no one like him. He is self-existent, without beginning, without end, without increase or decrease, without change, he is who he is. To what would you compare or measure God? Everything else, all of us, we derive our identity in relation to God, in relation to our situation, in relation to other people. God is incomparable. He is the creator. He is unique. There is none like him. He gains his identity from no one else, nothing else. So he simply says, I am who I am. He doesn't get his identity of existence from anything, from any being, from any process. He is self-sufficient. Now compare that with us, though, right? Because we, we may think that we're independent people, right? But we are not self-existent. We are contingent beings. We are dependent upon God and all that he provides for us. We may think that, you know, I can live my own life. I can, I'm, I'm self-sufficient. I can provide for myself. You know, I am, we use that in a relative term, right? You know, when we have our, our, our kids who graduate high school or college, we hope that they are, to some degree, right, self-sufficient, that they are independent, meaning they can find a job and provide for themselves and shelter themselves and so forth. But there's a limit to what we mean when we talk about human beings being independent or self-sufficient. Lachelle and I watched this show on History Channel called Alone. It is an amazing show. It's a wilderness survival show, and this is what it is. They take 10 people, they give them 10 items and drop them in the Arctic. They give them a satellite phone and say, if you break a leg and get mauled by a bear or just want to quit, call us. We'll pick you up. Last person out wins half a million dollars. That's it. No camera crew. I mean, they actually have the, the people have to like provide their, they have to do their own cameras, right? The only time a camera crew shows up is when they pick somebody up. But they have to go and they live in the Arctic during the winter months. And so they go there. They have like an axe, a fishing line, a backpack, a tarp. They have like 10 things. And they go in the Arctic, right? And they have to like build a house or build a shelter. They have to find fish. They have to actually make fire and boil water and do all these things and literally just survive. And, and they go for 40, 50, 60 plus days just living by themselves completely. And people, and these are, by the way, these are like really outdoorsy people. Like many of them have like military training or they run like survival schools. They do all this kind of stuff. They live off the land. You know, they're, they're making clothes out of animals. They're hunting moose. They're doing all this crazy stuff, right? But they tap out, that's what they call it. They, 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 they leave for a variety of different reasons. Some of them are like, I haven't eaten in two weeks, 
right? And they, 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 they're starving to death, right? Or they can't, they can't, it's, the, the weather is so intense they're freezing. Or they get sick or they break a leg or something like that. There was one guy who, um, who lost his fire rod, his fire stick, right? It just makes sparks. They can boil water and make fire and cook their meat and all that. He lost it. And he's like, I've got, I've got meat. I've got shelter. I've got water. I can't survive in the Arctic in winter without fire. He just had to tap out, right? And it really is a fascinating look at human psychology, but it's also fascinating because it reminds these people and it reminds us watching it just how completely and utterly dependent we are on things like food and water and shelter and human interaction because there's certain people who just miss their family and they can't take it anymore. They can't talk. They don't talk to human beings for weeks and they have to, they have to tap out. Compare that, like, so we can talk about how we're self-sufficient, how we're independent, but we are so dependent for our existence on so many things around us. God is not like that. Consider this. God does not get hungry. God does not get thirsty. God does not get bored. God does not get tired. God never, is never like working over creation. He's like, man, today really wore me out. I had to go take a nap so I can recharge my power. God doesn't ever run out of power. He doesn't ever run out of attention. There is no, nothing that can threaten God. There is nothing that can harm him. Nothing that can increase him, make him better or more powerful, nor decrease him. There is no lack in God. There's never a chance where it's like, man, if, if this doesn't go right or that doesn't go right, then God can't fulfill his purpose. God is dependent on nothing outside of himself. He is not at the will or whim of anything outside of himself. We even talked about last week how God is Trinity. So God isn't even lonely. He has perfect relationship within the Trinity. So guys, God's power is not enhanced or lessened due to circumstances. It's not that way with us, right? If, if everything is going well, we, we can thrive, right? But if circumstances sometimes aren't going just right, it can go really bad for us. But God is never, he's never more or less able to, to work or to do something due to circumstances. Okay, so God is, I am. Moses is like, I need some help here. Israel needs confidence that you are a worthy savior to be trusted in. That God, you are reliable, that you are powerful. And God says, okay, I will tell you something about myself, Moses, so you can encourage Israel that they will trust in me. Just tell them that I am. I am what I am. Guys, and that is to give confidence that God is a reliable and powerful savior. He's not at the whim of of creation. He's not subject to the same weaknesses. He's not dependent on things that could run out or fail him and then he could fail us. He's entirely self-existent. And along with that, we also have to speak about how God is eternal. God is, he's not dependent upon anything outside of himself for his existence, but we must also speak of his eternity. This is related to what is sometimes called the infinity of God. Right? The infinity of God is meaning that God is not limited by anything external to himself. And when we talk about God being eternal, we're saying that God is not limited or restrained or restricted by time. He's not subject to time or to us. He doesn't experience time the way that we do. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this. Before the mountains were ever brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world... From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Isaiah 57, 13 also says, talks about God who inhabits eternity. And so this is kind of the question, you know, when kids ask or we ask, you know, well, when did God begin? We always want to have like a beginning. Books begin with a phrase. Movies begin with a phrase. Okay, companies are started. Okay, churches are planted. People are born. Everything has a beginning, a starting place. Even the universe. God doesn't have that beginning. But we, so it's hard for us to think about that, but God exists from everlasting to everlasting. So a few notes on this to kind of help describe. This is a really hard one for us to grasp, myself included. But a couple things we need to say is God has no beginning or end. There was never a time when God was not. 
There, there was a time when nothing else was, right? There was, there was a time when there was no earth, when there was no stars, there were no sun, when there was nothing. But there was never a time when there was no God. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. But it is difficult because maybe he hasn't always put it in our minds. It's hard to grasp this idea of eternity, of limitless time, of not being subject to time. As I said, everything has a beginning, so we can't imagine a God that doesn't have a beginning. Once again, where reason fails us, may faith guide us. God has always been and always will be as he is now. And this is important, too. God has always existed. There's never a time when he has not existed, or there's never a time where he will stop being and existing. But a really cool aspect of this, and I'm kind of trudging on another topic we'll talk about in a later week, is how God is immutable, which means he, has, he is not subject to change. So if you go back to like how God was before the earth was created, God is any different. He's not more loving. He's not more joyful. He's not more, he's not more wrathful. He's not more sovereign. He hasn't learned anything. He hasn't forgotten anything. He hasn't increased in power or decreased in power. God is completely perfect, and he has always been who he is, and he will always be who he is. He's not going to like run out of steam. Like Our sun is really powerful, but we're always talking about how at some point it's going to burn out, or it'll burn us out, right? That's the, that's the talk. Like Every star, as immense and powerful as it is, it'll burn out at some point. God will never burn out. That's why God can simply say, I am. Not I will be, or I was, or I'm coming, I'm going to become there someday. I am. God doesn't have potential. We say, I mean, that's a good thing when we talk about people. Oh, man, yeah that, yeah, that kid, man, she really has a lot of potential. Meaning like, she can, get, she can accomplish much, she can do a lot. You know, God doesn't have any potential in that regard. God does not experience time as we do. We experience time as a succession of moments, as the seconds pass by, as, as minutes pass by, hours, days, weeks. We are within time and we exist and move through time. As much as we like to watch movies and read books about time travel, you know, and go back and change things and so forth, we, we, don't actually, we aren't actually able to do that. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if that disappoints you. Um, but we are, we are in, we exist, and we experience time through a succession of moments. God does not experience time. He's not under time the way that we are. In fact, if you want to think about this kind of interestingly, like how do we even think about time? Days, minutes, hours, years. Like it's, it's, it's the way the, the earth was. It rotates and then revolves around the sun. Like even the way that like our watch is ticking right now, it's all because of the way like the earth is moving and the way the universe is working. Like, God created all of that. Even all the ways that we measure time, right? God created all those things. God does not age or pass through time. He's not older now than he was at, before creation. So what we call the past, the present, and the future, in some sense, is all equally present to God. He sees time all as equally vivid. And God exists outside of it. However, when we say all that, some of that we just have to say, well, God exists outside of time. We don't fully understand. But we do know that God does interact with time, right? Most clearly, you know, God interacts with history. He acts in time in history. Most clearly when, the, when Jesus came and was incarnated, when the Son of God came and took on human flesh and, start, and actually lived in time. We don't fully understand this. Right? It is hard to imagine a God who's eternal, who exists, you know, um, but we just have to understand that God uh, is powerful over time. Second Peter 3, 18 kind of wonders about this. It says, do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That doesn't mean that God is, you know, I listen to podcasts at like 1.25 speed or Audiobooks, if it's a slow reader, like one and a half speed so they can get through the books quicker. Like God is not like listening or watching history at like two and a half or 1,000 speed. It's just, it's just like all time is present to God. And, and I, I'm looking for like an application point to this. And at, at some point you just have to throw up your hands and say, God be praised. You are greater than I. Guys, take comfort and joy in a God who is unchanging. 
who, who, isn't, who doesn't need to be updated with the times, who is always the same. Unlike, you know, we, we think it's a good thing that we, as we get older, hopefully, right, are growing and maturing and getting smarter and getting wiser and making better decisions. We hope that's what we're doing, right? That's a good, aging is kind of a good thing for us, right? You know, um, we, we, we talk about, you know, gray hairs, right, and, and how Proverbs talks about, we call them wisdom hairs, right? <laughs> Those, as you, as you get older, as you, you learn and grow, but God doesn't have to grow, God doesn't have to change or get better or become relevant to this age. He always is who he always is. And so you can build your life on him. The times are always changing. Increasingly so in our age, aren't they? It's like we just can't keep up. Everything is always changing, always in flux. God is unchanging. We move on. I don't want to at least mention, though, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but another aspect of God's being as it relates to this, is God's omnipresence, or sometimes called God's immensity. This is the, the fact that God is present everywhere. Wayne Grudem defines it this way in his systematic theology. Uh, God does not have size or spatial dimensions. He is present at every point of space with his whole being, yet God acts differently in different spaces. All right, so how big is God? And you, part of you wants to be like, oh, he's, he's big, right? Like, you want to describe, he's huge, you know, like, just really big, right? Like, is he bigger than the sun? Yeah! Is he bigger than the stars? Yeah, like, how big is God? Well, <laughs> the hard thing is, is we really shouldn't even, like, talk about God in terms of size, right? Because God does not have mass, God does not have matter, things like that. But God is present. We talk about his immensity. Let, let's talk about this positively, right? Uh, God is present in every point of space with his whole being. So it's not like a blanket, right? Like we had a blanket that covered this whole stage, right? You could say like, well, a part of the blanket covers that corner, and another part of the blanket covers that corner, another point. But that's not like, it's not like God is like stretched out and a part of him is somewhere. God, with all that he is, fills every part of creation. Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24 says this, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So, we say this about God because Scripture says this about God, that, that he fills all of his creation. There's no place where God is not, where he is barred from entry, where he is not present, right? He fills heaven and earth. That's put positively. Let's put it negatively, right? It doesn't mean bad. It just means opposite right here. He is not limited by space. God cannot be contained by space. There, there's not a place where God can't go, right? So Solomon prays the dedication of the temple, and he says this in 1 Kings 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I built. Right? In Acts, it's, it kind of says the same thing, right? Like, God does not live in temples built by human hands, right? God, does not, God is not constrained to this gym, right? This church building, right? Or the other church buildings, right? It's not as though God can be contained. Creation does not, itself, does not contain God or sustain him or house him, right? Now, I say all this, right? God is omnipresent, and we have to be careful here because we have to distinguish the God of Scripture with the God of pantheism. Pantheism, pan meaning all, theism is God, meaning is everything is God. Pantheism identifies God with the universe and sees the universe itself as kind of a manifestation of God. So in that sense, God, they would say God not only fills all of creation, fills all space, God kind of is everything. So, for example, this podium is God in some way, or divine, right? This, this lantern, these, these floor carpet tile things. This microphone, the trees, the clouds, the stars, like they would say that those are all, you know, God is all. God is everything in some sense, right? He fills the mountains, the trees, the stars, and the animals. 
And all those things are therefore manifestations of God and are therefore divine. This thinking, I think, is people who want to... Exp- where, where do we see this? We see this in Eastern religions, certainly, such as Hinduism and so forth. But we also see them in, you know, earth magic, people who, who practice Wiccan. Uh, sometimes people who consider themselves spiritual but not religious, who want to believe in, like, a supernatural world but don't want, like, but reject a personal God, right? I see on that show alone, it's really interesting. You'll have people talking about, like, oh, nature, thank you for providing for me whenever they, like, kill a squirrel or something. Well, thank a squirrel for its life, you know, and, like, they, they actually, like, it's like they, they have that worship instinct because they're made in God's image, right? But if you don't worship the creator, you tend to worship the creation and make that divine. You see glimpses of it. You see glimpses of it even among atheists. You ever hear, like, Neil deGrasse Tyson, or Neil, how do you say his name? You guys know what I'm talking about, though. Well, you hear atheists or materialists say things like, you're all made of star stuff. You ever heard that? And people are like, oh, it's all. If there is no God, that means nothing. Sorry to break it to you. Like, yes, we're made of gas and carbon and other things like that that burn. That, that is not unique and special if there is no God, right? But there's that worship instinct, right? It's wanting the universe to be something. The uni- and, and people will speak of the universe in personified terms, right? So we have to guard. When we, when we say that God is present everywhere, we still have to distinguish him from his creation because there is none like him so we we have to say god is everywhere without saying god is everything does that make sense guys but take comfort because the the whole point of this the reason why we're talking about this yeah because yeah it's, it's a nice big thought about god but what comfort is it to know that god is near always like, God is present here right now. He's especially present because his people who are filled with his Holy Spirit are here. God is always near. He's never far away. So, yes, he is near to you when your days are going well. And he is near to you when your days are going really bad. He's near to you when, when, you're, when, when things are good. He's near to you when you're depressed. He's near to you when you're with family. He's near to you when you're alone. He's near to, to you when you're suffering. He was near to Paul when he was in jail. He's near when we're worshiping and when we're sinning. He's a very present help in time of trouble. God is always there. And, and the psalmist writes, says, God, where can I flee from your spirit? Because sometimes we actually want to run away from God, right? That's what sin is. It's, God, I want to be in a place where you are not. But you can never actually Run to a place where God is not. And the psalmist even says, God, if I run to shale, if I die, if I run to the grave, even if I go to hell, God, just to get away from you, he's like, God, God is present everywhere. So he's, he's present in different ways. Sometimes he's present to bless. Sometimes he's present to judge. He's present in, in power in different ways. There's nowhere we can go where we can escape God. But it's also comforting to know that God is always near. So to summarize, who made God? And that first big question, who made God? Well, no one. He is who he is. I am what I am, who I am. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't draw his existence um, or, or sustain his being from anything else or anyone else. He is eternal. He has always been. He will always be. He's not limited by time. He's not limited by space. He doesn't need space or, or to, to house him or to sustain him. He simply is. Just tell all that to your five-year-old. No, I'm sure they'll get it, right? But there's another big question. And, and, that, and that idea of, you know, God is present. I just asked a second ago, right? But why can't we see him? Right? What, what is God? That's the first question might be, where is God? Who, who made God, right? Where did he come from? Another question, though, is like, what is God? If he's so big, if he's everywhere, and all of the things you just said, but... What is God? What's he composed of? There's, there's a couple, you know, there's a couple ways we get to answer this. Some might say, well, God is just like us. He, God has a physical body somewhere. He's in heaven right now, but he has a, a physical form. Now, we can say that of Jesus Christ, who has taken on human flesh and, and maintains that. But this idea that God has a physical body, 
the Father, the Son, maybe even the Spirit have a, have a body of flesh. Actually, Mormons believe that. Mormons believe that God the Father is a glorified man. So, or some might say that God is, well, what is God? Well, God is like an energy or a force, kind of like electricity or like Star Wars, the force, right? The God is just this, this power, that's actually closer to pantheism, right? So that, that won't actually do. Or maybe like a philosophical idea, like God is pure thought. God is pure reason or pure intellect, an impersonal reasoning machine. Well, that, that won't do either. What is God made of? What is he? Scripture doesn't really give us a clear answer, but the, the best we have in one word is found in John 4.24, where Jesus simply says, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And that may be the closest the scripture gives us to describe what God is. Now, what does this mean that God is spirit? Well, a couple things. God is not material. God is not made of matter, right? He's not made of stuff. He's not made of stuff either, right? Um, He doesn't have a physical form the way that we do. But God has a substantial being, okay, distinct from creation. He's not just this essence that's you know formless or whatever but we believe that god is simple he's not complex which means you know he's not composed of parts now well someone else is going to talk about the simplicity of god and that's that's kind of a fun one but like we are made of of a composition of things we are made of bones and muscles and skin and ligaments and joints and tissues and fluids you know you know, we are made of stuff. Things are put together, composed of parts, right? God is not a composed of parts. He is a whole. He is simple. Even saying that, we're not saying God is made of spirit, whatever that is. God himself is spirit. We believe this means, the fact that God is spirit means that God is invisible. He is not able to be perceived by bodily senses. That's the reason why we don't see him with our eyes or smell him or hear him or what anything else. 1 Timothy 1.17 gives praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Later in 1 Timothy chapter 6, says, He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So part of God being spirit is that he's not like everything else around us where we can see him. He is spirit. God is distinguished, though, from other spirits because we, even as human beings, have a spirit. We are kind of a mixture of of body and spirit or soul. Angels are spiritual beings. Devils, demons are spiritual beings. Yet those are created and limited. They're actually bound in, in space in some way. But God is distinguished from other beings that are pure spirit. So guys, whatever it means that God is spirit, it's almost like we can say more what it doesn't mean than what it means, right? God is spirit. And whatever that means is it's the most noble, most pure, most excellent kind of existence. God is spirit. But so, what, so here's a question, though. But what about all those scriptures that talk about the arm of the Lord or the voice of the Lord? Does God have arms and legs and fingers and toes, even like spiritual ones? Does God wear a a white robe? Is God sitting on a throne? We actually see this this picture in Scripture a lot, right? The the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. How tall is God? How long is his arm, right? This seems actually, but, but all these descriptions of God seem to be a condescension on God's part. On God's point, it's, you know, it's, it's God's way of communicating in ways that make sense to us, right? They're anthropomorphisms, I gotta say this word, anthropomorphisms, right? Or they're, uh, they're figurative to, to show us that, that God, you know, to, to communicate ways that God is. So does God, have, does God really have two eyes that he sees with? We, we know that God sees us. He sees all of creation. Does God have two eyes? Does he really ride on the clouds like a surfboard? Does God, have, does God actually have a tongue when he speaks? No, these, these are figurative descriptions of God that help us. Because guys, God wants us to know him, and he wants us, he wants us to know him and to speak of him, and when he reveals to us is truthful and trustworthy. However, when we speak of God, when we think of God, we should do so with humility. 
and with reverence. Guys, so we have freedom to speak of God and to think of him in ways that he has revealed himself to us, using the analogies that he has deemed accurate. So yes, God does see us, right? And how do we see things? With our eyes. God speaks truth. God's arm is mighty to save. God, Christ sits on his throne ruling over the nations. But we have to be careful about pressing these analogies too far, right? So we say things like, God is a rock. Well, we know he's not made of granite, right? Like that is saying something about who God is. He's strong. He's trustworthy. He's not easily, a rock is not easily toppled. God cannot be toppled at all. It's really interesting. The, the spirituality of God isn't just like a nice like thought for your theologians. Like it's essential that we think of God in these terms and that we tread carefully when we're talking about God and thinking about God and conceiving of God in our mind. It's so important that God put it as the second commandment. After he says, don't have any other gods but me, he's really careful about how you think about him, particularly making images of him. Exodus 20, 4 through 6. I think, it's, I, think I have a slide for that, yeah. He says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Guys, God is supremely concerned about his reputation and his revelation of himself in the world. So he speaks to us in images that we can understand, but he forbids us from actually making images of him. Because when we do that, first of all, those very quickly turn into idols. That's what idolatry is. It's not necessarily, there's a difference, I think, between, and sometimes those lines blur between an idol and a false god, like a god, you know, Baal, or something like that, like a completely other god. Idolatry is this idea of, it's initially making images, or carved images, of t- making a physical, tangible, material representation of God. This is what God is like. And very quickly, we begin thinking about God in those terms. And then we take God, and we can move him around, and we can do things with him. And God says, that's not me. And the moment we put God on paper... The moment we, go, we carve God in stone, we have diminished. We've gotten something wrong about him. You may disagree with this one, but I'll say this. Sistine Chapel is an absolutely beautiful painting, and I think it breaks the second commandment because it, 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 it paints a, a really amazing picture, and it's amazing artistry, but it's actually you know, this picture of God as this old man, you know, pointing the finger at Adam and Eve, just, and Adam and God barely touching. I, I think it actually does an amazing artistic job of demonstrating what was lost. But it's making an image of God in our minds as this old man with a long white beard in a way that makes him look like a man. And his skin tone is a certain color. And it actually starts creating an image of God. So when you pray... How do you imagine God? How do you think of God? We have to be very, very careful how we do that. God takes this seriously. It's actually very important to him that, he is, that, that God is, the, is invisible. And he says, you know what? I have given you an image, though, my son. Jesus, Colossians tells us, he is the image of the invisible God. God remains invisible to us, right? Jesus is the image. He's the one we can look to. So I actually do think that because Jesus became a man, it's actually appropriate to have pictures or video depictions of Jesus Christ because he actually took on human flesh, right? So we're depicting Jesus as a human being. So I think that's differently. You can watch The Chosen, right? But he says, that is, that is what I approve of, God says. If you want to know what I'm like, look at my son. Don't create an image. Don't create an idol. Don't draw pictures. Don't do those things. Look at my son. Jesus goes so far as to say, if you have seen the son, you've seen the father. Not because the Son and the Father are the same person, they are the same being. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. These are deep waters, right? These are hard things. But man, I hope as we talk about God like this, it doesn't push him farther away, but draws us near to him with, with trembling, right? God is incomprehensible, right? Even, all the, even as I'm saying these things, they're hard and they're heavy. 
but they ground us. God is knowable. He is, you know, we are like him in the ways that he has made us, in certain ways because we're made in his image, but there, in, the, in some drastic ways, there is no one like him. And that should cause us to be humble. That should cause you to trust him. That should cause you to worship him. That should cause you to have confidence in him. I pray that we're all humbled by this. We do not see God right now. We don't hear his voice. He's present in this room right now among us. And part of us wants to say, where? Where's he at? Well, we don't see him. He's invisible. But it doesn't mean he's not real. Someday we will see him as he is, at least to the degree that it's possible. 1 John 3 uh, promises us this. It says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, that's Christ, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall see Christ in glory. We will stand before the face of Christ and we will be in the presence of God with face unveiled and to the degree that we can experience God in glory, we will. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'm going to invite the worship team up now. As we, uh, as we get ready to regather and worship here. And I pray that as we weigh these things, as we're taking the next few weeks and talking about the attributes of God, I pray that we would continually come with a sense of humility and wonder and joy at a God who, is, who never runs out of steam, who never gets tired. Our Savior is never asleep. He's always present. He's unchanging. He's all-powerful. If you have Christ Jesus as your Lord, you can say, that's not some like theoretical God out there, you know, who's nice to talk about, like, that is your God, it is your Savior. And that, that is what, that the name I am, that wasn't just God saying, hey Moses, I got this really like confusing theological term I want to give you. He says, no, this is my covenant name that I will go by for the rest of our relationship. I am that I am, the Lord. I am the God who saves you. That is the God we worship. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we we come to you confessing, Lord, that you are God and we are not. You are the only true and living God. And Lord, if there's anyone here where that is a question in their mind, would you reveal yourself in truth and power and convict hearts and minds? Lord, for your people, Lord, I pray these things would not discourage us. Lord, from seeking you, but rather encourage us to seek you, Lord. You are greater than we can ever imagine. Lord, help us to submit ourselves to you and to seek you in your word and to find confidence and boldness to come before the throne of grace. For you alone are God. So, Lord, we cast our cares upon you. We cast our hope in this life and the life to come upon you. Lord, we don't want to Uh, worship other gods or worship creation or or try to take your glory and assign it to to anything that you have made but lord reserve our praise and our worship for you and you alone lord you are unchanging so god help us to build our life upon you and not the shifting things of this world god by your grace help us to think of you rightly unite our hearts lord to fear your name in the name of jesus we pray Amen.